All right, well, let's pray together. Father, come before you now in the name of Jesus, and I do ask um, that uh, you will bring wisdom and comfort and insight to each of these who have uh, lifted up a request. I pray, Father, that uh, you will uh, render provision for those that are in need of uh, finances or things being fixed. I pray that you will bring protection to those who are in fear, uh, to those that are still dealing with perhaps the after effects of illness, the virus or something else. Um, and uh, I just pray for provision for those who are in financial need. Um, I pray, Father, for healing for those that uh, are trying to come out of illness and uh, want, to, uh, want to get back to their regular lives. And I pray, Father, that we will all be grateful and we will recognize your providence in the midst of everything that is happening. Um, we need to stop running around acting like little pagans and not realizing that you are God and you're bigger than all of our problems and you are at work even when we're not understanding how you're working, where you're working or when you're working. But we can trust that you are good and you are loving and we can invite you into our situation and we can ask you to work. And I pray, Father, that uh, each person that is listening to me right now will do that. They will invite you to come into their life and to give them direction. Um, you're not just going to give us things that we ask as though you're our holy concierge or genie or something. Uh, you're here to direct us, not us to direct you. So uh, I pray that we'll realize that we can have some incredible uh, helpful, healthy lives if we'll just follow you, we'll pay attention to you. And so I pray that you'll open up your word, you open up our hearts, and I pray that we will uh, receive what you want us to receive tonight and that uh, we will move in the direction that you are leading us. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, uh, so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we almost finished... Uh, 10, 9 or 10, I think it's pretty started in 9, but actually it's supposed to start in 10 last week, going through verse 17. The last verse that I don't think I covered uh, was verse 17. The Apostle Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And you remember what had happened was he was saying, that there were people who were divided because they were saying that they were following various teachers. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And Paul said, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, you weren't baptized in my name. He said, and I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you. And then he mentions a couple, except these people. Oh, and there were those people, but I don't remember who else I baptized, right? <laughs> which I love it. And I told you why I love that. It just shows that this is a real person and you know, that God is not mechanically dictating all of the words that they're saying, like they're just going into a coma and, you know, writing the word of God, but their personality is interacting. His personality was interacting. And out of that, Hey, I didn't, you know, baptize these people, but I did those. Then he makes this statement, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Listen, baptism is important. And there are denominations that make it really almost all important. There are denominations that 
focus on baptism as absolutely essential for salvation. If you're not baptized, then you can't go to heaven. And we can, uh, I think, debate that uh, considerably. But in the end, baptism is a symbol of another reality, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as it is applied to my life. And that's why we baptize and many other denominations and churches like ours baptize by immersion. We put the person under the water. It's like a watery grave, right? And then we raise them up out of the water. It's like coming up from the grave, resurrection. Now something that, uh, a symbol that is there that we don't speak of often, but is on the, the end of the teaching from uh, a couple of weeks ago when I talked about Nicodemus, is that baptism is representative of that new birth. It is like coming up out of that watery womb, right? And, you know, becoming a new person in Christ. But it's a symbol. It's a sign. It's not the thing in itself. So if you go down here to Buckingham, uh, or excuse me, to Garland Road and Walnut, there's a restaurant that sits there and it has a sign out in front that looks like this. What's that restaurant? McDonald's. What's that restaurant? McDonald's. Thank you. There used to be a commercial. You guys are all looking at me like I'm weird or something. I don't think a restaurant. I don't think a McDonald's is a restaurant. <laughs> when you see that sign, those golden arches, you know, your stomach starts growling right then, right? Do you go to the sign and hold out your hand and order? No. No, the sign is pointing to the restaurant. The sign is not going to give you any food. But if you don't see the sign, are you going to know the restaurant's there? You are not. It's just a building over there. Now, maybe word of mouth and so forth. But that sign is letting you know, hey, there's a restaurant over here. So it's pointing to a reality beyond itself. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at right now? Mm -hmm. That's baptism. Right. So baptism, when I teach the class on baptism, uh, I relay a teaching that I received when I first got baptized uh, as a 16 year old young man. Um, baptism is like a uniform. When you join the military, you go and you sign the paperwork. From the time you sign that paperwork, you are in. You don't have the haircut. You haven't gone through boot camp. You don't know anything from anything except, you know, the video games you've been playing or the movies you've been watching or whatever it is. But even though you don't look anything like the military and you don't know anything about the military, you haven't been trained yet. You are full on in the military because you made the commitment. Do you understand what I'm saying right now? Yes. Salvation comes when you say Jesus is Lord. It doesn't come when you go and get wet, whether that's sprinkling or pouring or immersion irrelevant. It is a sign of something beyond itself. It is important, but it is not all important, right? Um, and that's why the apostle Paul could say, Jesus didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Now, last week, there were a couple of uh, guests that were here, and one of them prompted me after I turned the, the uh, broadcast off uh, to by telling me what I had been discussing at the end of last week's lesson. So I told you guys, I started to tell you 
about a time when we had a lot of young people in this church and we were meeting up the road here at the Seventh-day Adventist uh, church. We're meeting in this huge building and I had these young people that were sitting in the back of the room, right? And um, I was trying to learn how to pitch for our softball team. Our church was all up into playing softball every year then. So I had these wiffle balls, right? You can learn how to pitch with a wiffle ball, big, hollow plastic ball. And I told him before I started the service, I said, now I'm gonna check to pay, be sure if you're paying attention. I'm gonna throw one of these out there to you if I think that I need to check on your attention, right? And my thought was, this is gonna keep them kind of on the edge of their seat yeah. and they're gonna be waiting for the ball to be coming their way, right? so that they can catch it. Gives them something to do. Well, it makes sense. Young people are young people, and uh, it doesn't matter what era it is. Well, I saw this group that was in the very, I still remember, I was in the front. This is a 900-seat auditorium over there. And they're sitting way in the back, over on the audience right, my left. And so I, if I might say so myself, I threw a beautiful pitch. I mean, I pitched it right out there and it bounced off this kid's head. I mean, he did not pay a bit of attention at all. So, why did I want to give that example? Because that pitch is like the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I'm pitching this word out to you all the time. Are you catching it? Faith, or are you letting it bounce off your head, right? There are people that, get baptized because all their friends are getting baptized. Um, I can remember there was a, was a big youth revival um, during my first youth ministry uh, in the colony. So I was a youth minister at First Baptist Church of the Colony. And we had this fellow that came out. Um, it was a family of evangelists uh, called the Gages, G-A-G-E-S. There was a dad and I think there were two, two brothers but this was Rodney Gage. And Rodney Gage came out and he did a youth revival. And Rodney Gage would preach like this. This is the old style of preaching. And those of you that have been around the church for a while know this style of preaching. <laughs> if I preached like this all the time, I could probably have a church full of people and you all would enjoy that style of preaching. And I can do it. I know how to do it. I have seen it done for years. And this was Rodney Gage. There was a young lady and she was traveling at a very high rate of speed and her vehicle got into an accident. You know, that's the way we preach. He was, he was big on baptism. So as soon as people would, you know, he gave the standard old school invitation, you know, come forward. Now, you know, Pastor Craig and I stand up here and we're, we're ready to pray with you guys whenever you want to come up and pray with us. Somebody wants to pray a prayer of salvation. I want to just pray for other things in their lives. Um, it seems to me that without a lot of pressure, people are simply not as willing to move. Now, I also know how to do that, right? I can apply the proper amount of pressure and I could get more people to stand up and walk down here. I just think that it's fake. I think it's artificial. I think if I'm having to emotionally pressure you to do something, then you're responding to me. You're not responding to the Holy Spirit and you haven't caught the message. You're catching some sort of persuasion from a person, right? Well, he was big on baptism. We baptized hundreds of kids. There were 400 and some odd teenagers that made decisions that week. 
And we baptized half of them, I'll bet. In fact, we were double dipping them. Um, it was the pastor and I were both standing in the baptistry and we would have two kids come down at a time, baptize and out. Two more kids come down, baptize. And I mean, we were flowing them, flowing them, flowing them. We had it going on. But you know, out of those kids, I'll bet four or five of them stuck and continued to come to church and really showed that they were disciples. Baptism is supposed to show that you've decided to be a disciple. That's what it's, it's de designed to do. It recognizes you. It's your uniform. You've said, Jesus is Lord. I'm signing up. I'm committing my life to him. Now I'm a disciple. But a disciple means you're following Jesus. Baptism is not just an event. It's not an experience. And then you just go on with your life however you go on with your life. And this is why I don't like to push, push, push hard on baptism either. I want folks to receive the message, have faith, and then understand baptism is important and we want to baptize you. But I want you to follow through with that. I want you to do something about it. Now, I can't make people do something about anything. All we can do is teach what the Word of God teaches, right? But I'm not going to preach baptism. I'm going to preach the gospel, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Um, and then he says that he doesn't preach with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So speaking with persuasive words or beautiful words, or these days being essentially a comedian, entertaining people, We'll get lots of people to keep coming and keep listening and keep paying attention. Um, I've noticed, I mean, in our time, it's all about media, right? Online media, whether it's YouTube or I'm not on. I tried to to see if I could do a video or something for TikTok. I don't even understand it. I'm sorry. It's you don't you don't seem to be able to select what you want to do. It just. It just gives you the videos that it wants to give you. I don't want it to give me the, I don't want to see all that stuff. I want to pick what I want to see. I don't want you to tell me what to see. No, you get to watch this and you didn't, I, I don't even know what's going on right now. Okay. So I'm not on that, but that's another thing that kids watch endlessly. They endlessly scroll through those videos. If you are funny, right? If you're engaging, if you're interesting, if you're persuasive, if you do goofy stuff, um, one of the families that stayed here during the freeze, uh, two of the boys were in the back room back there in the morning, because I came down here in the morning to check on everybody. And uh, you can watch YouTube on the television in the back room back there. We've got a little, one of those Roku sticks. In fact, it was the Roku stick that I bought for Vernon back when Vernon was in assisted living so that he could watch our service. In any event, and they're back there watching this guy that is just being a goofball and like running up against like plastic screens and he's in a weight room and he's throwing stuff around and he's just millions of views. I'm not kidding. Millions of views. There are some of these videos that millions of people watch and they don't have any real value at all. I'm not saying they're immoral or evil or anything. They're just nonsense, right? And not just to an old guy like me. They're just designed to have people laugh. Right. You know, or videos about, you know, uh, somebody's shoes or you know, just random stuff. And this can happen when it concerns uh, religious teaching, if you will, as well, where people are just trying to keep 
you paying attention. They just need the clicks. They need the likes. They need the views, right? But that's not the word of God. Now, I'm not saying the word of God should be boring. But the Apostle Paul said, listen, it's not about eloquent wisdom. It's about preaching the gospel, right? Now, let's look at verses 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, quote, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I love that word thwart. It's a great word. Verse 20, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, that's a, a beautiful sentence, and I want to read it again. Really? Right? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We'll talk about it in a minute. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. All right? So let's start with that first sentence there. The word of the cross. What is that? What is the word of the cross? It's the message about Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection. And in other words, this is another way of saying the gospel, right? The good news about Jesus, which in the earliest known uh, Christian uh, recitation goes like this. This is in this very letter, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you what I received as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he goes on to tell about the appearances, that he appeared to Peter and he appeared to the twelve, um, he appeared to over 500 brothers at once, and the last of all, the Apostle Paul said, he appeared to me as to one untimely born. That's the word of the cross, the message of the cross. That's the gospel, right? Just two ways of saying the same thing. Um, the Christian message, succinctly, right? It's not about rules, behaving. Uh, it's not about uh, certain feelings that we have about God. Uh, it's not even about certain theological points. According to... William Barclay, in evaluating the message of Christianity as it's presented in Acts, he says this, What then was this Christian message? If we study the four great sermons in the book of Acts, and those are contained in Acts 2, 14 through 39, that's the first Christian sermon uh, Peter preaches, in Acts 3, 12 through 26, that's the second great sermon that Peter preaches. In 4, 8 through 12, and in 10, 36 through 43. He says, we find that there are certain constant elements of the Christian preaching. Number one, there's the claim that the great promised time of God has come. That's the kingdom of God. That was John the Baptist's message. That was Jesus' message. Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is right at the door. It is ready to start, right? The great promised time of God has come. Number two, there's a summary of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There it is, the message of the cross. The kingdom of God has come, that has been inaugurated, that has been brought into being by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Number three, there, <clears throat> there is a claim that all of this was the fulfillment of prophecy. This was not novel. It was not innovative. Theology should not be innovative. We're talking about a, a God who has always existed. We're talking about Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. We're not here to create a new religion. This is why every time a new religion comes up, the first thing they have to do is go back and cross out the Bible in some way, great or small. Muhammad comes along uh, 500 years after Jesus and says, no, the, the Bible doesn't have it all. It's wrong, it's an error, but God has spoken to me, right? And so you have the Quran and you have all of these misunderstandings and misinterpretations of the Bible, as a matter of fact. Bear in mind, Islam came along 500 years after Jesus died and rose, 500 years later, right? So then 1800 years later, what happens? This fellow named Joseph Smith comes along. He's a 14, 15 year old kid and he says he has a vision from an angel and he asked the angel, hey, what religion should I go join? And the angel said, don't join any of them. They're all corrupt. Start your own. <laughs> so he did. Latter-day Saints, Mormonism, right? So you've got this, he's got his own book too. See, they always cross out the Bible and come up with another book, right? But they won't cross it out entirely and they all want to say Jesus was a good guy, right? Muslims say, hey, Jesus is a prophet. They don't believe he died on the cross. And he's not as great a prophet as Muhammad. Joseph Smith, well, Jesus, we believe Jesus is the son of God. And we believe that he came over to America and you know, led these groups of people over here, groups that existed in Iron Age societies at a time when the Native Americans in this continent were in the Stone Age. There's never been a shred of archeological evidence verifying anything in the Book of Mormon. But you have these huge Iron Age battles and these peoples that were over here. And you know Jesus purportedly came over here after he was in uh, Israel. Further, Mormons believe that uh, the God of this planet is only one God of many gods. And so this is a religion of, of polytheism, right? Now they wouldn't say worship all these other gods, we just worship this God, but they say something that is as bad. They say, you can become a God. Not, you should become more like Jesus. Not, you're made in the image of God, but you can become a God. In fact, there were Mormons in the early time period that believed that Adam is actually the God of this planet. This is not what you hear. These are nice people, right? Men in ties telling lies. They're nice guys, but they're telling lies and they believe the lies. And I'm not mad at them and I don't hate them, but I don't agree.
and you need to understand that we are talking about the fulfillment of prophecy that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. Do you remember that story, the story of the fall, right? Eve is tempted, she eats the fruit, she gives it to her husband, who by the way was just standing there saying nothing to her, wow. And then when God says, hey, what's going on? This woman that you gave me, she did it, it's her fault. Now, unlike our time period where everybody's a victim and, you know, we blame other people for our problems, okay, um, everybody would probably in our time period would say, you evil woman, how dare you? God gave you to that man to help him and you helped him eat fruit that he shouldn't have eaten. No, God just takes responsibility. He says, he says to Adam, first person that he created, he says, what's going on? He said, yeah, I ate the fruit, but this woman gave it to me. Well, he, he was being factual, but he was blaming. And God said, well, what's this you've done? So he makes her responsible because she's responsible as well. And she said, the serpent tempted me. And so then God goes to the serpent and he makes the serpent who is Satan responsible. And the curse that he places on the serpent, he says that the woman's seed will come forth and crush his head, even though you, the serpent, will bruise his heel. Well, that's the gospel succinctly presented in Genesis chapter three. Jesus came and destroyed the works of the enemy, destroyed death. And in the process, he got hurt, right? You ever gotten a heel bruise? You know how, you know how much that hurts? I mean, you know, I did that a few times when I was a kid. You know, you jump off a counter or something and it's kind of high. And instead of landing on your toes, you kind of pop your heel. I mean, it's painful. I'm just trying to give you an idea of what we're talking about. When, when we say you will bruise his heel, Jesus going through what he went through was not uh, an easy experience. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. And number four, there's the assertion that Jesus will come again. So it's not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it is the second coming of Jesus. That is in Christian preaching and teaching from the beginning throughout the book of Acts. And then finally, Barclay says, there's an urgent invitation to men and women to repent, that means change your thinking and change your ways and receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. That's good stuff, that's succinct, right? But all of this flows out of the word of the cross or the message of the cross. Jesus came, Jesus lived the life that you and I cannot live, do not live, will not live, but must live if we're going to have uh, an existence with a perfect God. And then he was killed, he was crucified, executed for our sins. He was buried and he rose on the third day. Well, in 2004, uh, there was a very controversial movie that came out, and I bet all of you have heard of it. Do you remember The Passion of the Christ? Mel Gibson's movie? When I first started hearing about it, it was probably a year or so before it came out, and I heard that Mel Gibson was coming out with a movie about <clears throat> the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, about the final week, the passion of Jesus, and... Uh, but it wasn't gonna be in English. It was gonna be in Aramaic and Latin. And I was like, okay, that's gonna be really weird. <laughs> right? 
I, that's just sounded really weird. And I thought, Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson, you know, I mean, he played, remember when he played the cop and he was kind of crazy? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's just part of Mel Gibson's personality. I think he's just got that in him, right? But I don't know if you watched this movie, it was extremely powerful. Now, it had some artistic license. It did some kind of weird stuff like, you know, Satan is a bald woman. And there was this one scene where this midget was kind of like a sort of a satanic baby Jesus figure being held by the bald woman. It was weird, right? But on the whole, the beating and the crucifixion was as brutal as it would have been. Well, I still remember that after that movie came out, you had a whole lot of people saying, what? Why? Because the gospel is just not central to our culture anymore. People don't understand what Jesus went through. They don't think about it. And so people were saying, why? Why did Jesus have to go through all that? Why couldn't God just say, hey, you're forgiven. Go your way. Well, actually, Jesus did say that several times, right? But what you and I don't understand is that redemption, ransom, reconciliation had to happen as the result of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was essential, right? And um, <clears throat> there is a theory of atonement, right? So atonement means bringing God and man back together. We're estranged. We're separated from God. We're not all children of God. Just stop saying that. Stop saying that. We're made in the image of God, but we're broken. We have to be brought back to God. The world is not under God's immediate control any longer. It's fallen, right? People have to be brought into God's family. You have to be reborn. You have to be adopted into his family. You're not naturally a child of God. Stop saying that. It's not true. It just makes you feel good. But you know what? That doesn't matter. You can be really, really, really sick and take some medicine that makes you feel better, but doesn't hit the illness. It doesn't stop the virus or it doesn't stop the infection. It just stops the pain, right? So, uh, you know, cancer patients uh, are given some very, very powerful um, medications that will help them to endure the pain but it doesn't stop the source of the pain. In order to stop the source of the pain, they have to take out the cancer. They have to kill the cancer. And that's a very, very difficult operation. It's a very difficult procedure, right? You've got radiation and you've got chemo and you've got surgery and all these other things, but they may take, there's a very powerful cancer drug that sadly has now become a street drug. It's called fentanyl, right? It's, it is the most powerful painkiller, if you will, that there is, right? More powerful than OxyContin. Oxy has become a street drug as well. Well, there are people who are in extreme pain who need these drugs for short periods of time as palliatives so that they're not in pain anymore. But it doesn't stop the source of the pain. So for a while there, my back was really hurting. This is uh, 2010, I think, is when this really happened. And it all started... I used to ride my bike out on the Rowlett Creek nature trails where Elijah runs all the time. I used to ride my bike out there like 
two, three, four times a week. And um, it was really therapeutic. I, getting out and walking, riding a bike, whatever, out in the trees, it's, it's good for us, man. You would not believe what an antidepressant, a good walk can be. That's our problem. We shut ourselves up and we stare at screens and we let people scream at us and tell us how bad the world is and what racists we are and how evil everything is. And that's the problem. Shut it off. Go outside. Roll around. Walk around. Do something beyond yourself, right? That's going to help to, you know, get it. Well, anyway, um, Craig had a, had a pretty good-sized youth group back then. He was our youth minister. And um, we had some younger guys that were in the group. And I always have a, a heart for these younger guys. And uh, there was this little guy. What was his name? Uh, I can't remember his name. It might come to me in a minute. Uh, but, you know, he was still younger guy. His voice hadn't changed yet, so he talked like this. <laughs> hey, Pastor D. I still remember that. Now, what's really funny about this is the last time I talked to this kid, he called me on the phone. He goes, hey, Pastor D. Like, what in the world? just? <laughs> oh, Cooper. That was his name. Hey, Pastor D, it's me, Cooper. You know, can we do something? <laughs> what are we going to do? You know, I'm like, I'm not a youth minister anymore. And I just, I don't, what am I going to do? So I was like, Cooper, let's do this. You got a bike? Yeah, yeah, he's got a bike. So I get our van. We have this blue 15 passenger van. And I shove his bike and my bike in behind the seats in the van. And I drive out to the Rowlett Creek nature trails out there. And... We rode around for two hours and, you know, I just rode like I used to ride and I took him on some really cool, you know, uh, areas where there's some steep stuff and everything like that. In fact, I've probably still got some old video of this kid. I got at the base of this one little steep drop and said, okay, Cooper, let's go, you know, and he came flying down. But when I got back to the van, I got off the bike and I couldn't stand all the way up. You know how you bend over when you ride a bike, right? I mean, it was bad and it didn't stop hurting. So, you know, up until that point, I think that I had made light of people that get addicted to, you know, Vicodin or Oxy or something like that, thinking, yeah, you're just weak and, you know, you're just taking drugs, just druggy. No, I didn't think like that. I'm just, I'm really, really kind of being very hard on myself because I think a lot of times we just assume that people are on drugs you know, they're just bad people. Well, you know, they're people making bad choices. And well, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a, a doctor that prescribed anything like that um, because, you know, muscle relaxers or, uh, you know, drugs like Vicodin and Oxy and fentanyl and whatever, they will moderate the pain, but they won't stop it. It doesn't stop. And the bad thing about back pain, and those of you that have it know, there's, there's nothing you can do. You, you, you can't get in a comfortable position. You can't lay down. You can't sit down. You can't, what do you do? Well, I started learning to stretch and getting back into working out. And it took about, honestly, about a year of that before that pain subsided. And so one of the reasons why I go to the gym every day except Sunday is because it keeps that pain away. I keep working out. So there are people that are like, you know, uh, you know, I don't care about living longer and I'm done. And it's about quality of life. 
You know, who wants to live like that? Well, see, this is the problem with the way people handle, I think, Christianity and salvation. Uh, they don't understand that the medicine that we need to take is a whole lot like cancer-killing drugs, like chemo, like radiation. But it went through Jesus who died on the cross. You gotta take the medicine. We can't just make people feel better. We need to make them better. And you don't get better until you go through the therapy. You don't get better until you not just take a pain reliever. Well, I don't wanna offend anybody. They might need to get offended so that they can get well. Now, I don't need to be the person that's the, you know, my personality is that's the source of the offense. That's not what I'm saying. But what we're going to see right here in this scripture is that the cross is offensive. And there were people that just didn't want to hear that. They didn't understand that level of brutality. Um, the most familiar theory of atonement is known as penal, as in penalty, P-E-N-A-L, like a penal institution, right? Uh, a prison, a place where you get punished for your uh, wrongdoing. It's called penal substitution. Jesus died in place of sinful humanity, right? You're familiar with this. This is why it's the most familiar. Um, it's expressed in the Messianic passage of Isaiah 53, and one of the verses that I think in Isaiah 53 that best um, sum, uh, summarizes it is, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Right? So we're very familiar with that. But see, there's been a huge pushback against that. Now you saw popular pushback in the wake of uh, the Passion of the Christ, but there's been a huge pushback against that in popular writing. Um, there are writers who have said, well, that's just divine child abuse. Now, I could have played a video up here. Uh, there's a, uh, a philosopher by the name and theologian by the name of William Lane Craig, who is addressing that issue and others. Um, and he quotes one of the writers who have, have called penal substitution uh, divine child abuse. So that's not really what the Bible is saying. Really? Because Romans 3, 25 and 26, the Apostle Paul says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this, that is, God did this to uh, demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, that is, in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Yes, it is very, very clearly presented in scripture. But let's talk about divine child abuse. Well, William Lane Craig bats this away by saying that's just a rhetorical flourish. Let's, let's, let's answer it for just a moment. Was Jesus a child when he died on the cross? No. Did Jesus die on the cross unwillingly? No and no. But see, this is the kind of rhetorical foolishness that we run into when people simply don't want to receive God's gospel, the message of the cross. They say it's foolish and they make a statement that 
sounds like, you know, to somebody that's just listening from the outside, it's foolish, right? No, Jesus was an adult man between 33 and 37 years old who made up his mind and set his face like flint to Jerusalem to suffer for our sins. Further, people who make such foolish statements don't understand the Trinity, the oneness of God. God suffered as Christ suffered on the cross. Talk to me about that. Divine child abuse? What kind of a fool do you make us all out to be? Jesus suffered because he chose to suffer. And it was absolutely necessary. But they want to make it seem like it's foolishness. Well, behind the questions about the brutality or the lack of necessity of the atonement was and is this attitude that is addressed in verse 18. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. What is it? It is the power of God. The power of God for your salvation is Christ's death and resurrection. That's the, this is not about wisdom. It's not about religion. It's not about philosophy, not about theology. It's not about morality. It's about God reaching down to lost human beings and saying, I love you this much. You have the sentence of death hanging over your head like the sword of Damocles. I'm going to come and take it for you. Do you know that old Greek myth about the sword of Damocles? Damocles who had the sword hanging over his head by a thread that at any moment could drop and pierce him. What if someone pushes him out of the way and takes that sword? You know, that, that's what happened with Jesus. The reason human beings die, the reason you will die and I will die is because of sin. But eternal life was brought into existence through Christ when he rose from the dead. This is absolutely essential. Muslims cut off their ability to be saved by failing to recognize, refusing to recognize that Jesus died on the cross for them. That's sad. We can't just say, well, I don't want to offend anybody. You, you need to stop. You want to talk about Jesus, then you need to talk about the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because the Gnostic Jesus ain't Jesus, and the Muslim Jesus ain't Jesus, and the Mormon Jesus ain't Jesus. And I'm not mad at anybody except the devil for propagating lies like that. And we need to stop thinking, well, I don't want to offend anybody. Well, in saying that, all you're doing is putting a palliative on uh, their, their wound. You're just making them feel better and letting the wound just rot away. I remember somebody, I can't remember who it was, uh, recently posted a picture of a black widow spider. Anybody ever seen a black widow spider? We had lots of those in Arizona when I was growing up. In fact, I remember one time I opened up our shed and there were multiple black widow webs with sacks of babies in them all over the inside of this shed, right? I mean, that's when you get busy and kill them. I can remember for a short period of time, I flirted around with being a Boy Scout. Uh, I was a Boy Scout for precisely one day and my mom was gonna be a den mother. And this kid and I were sword fighting out in the backyard and he poked me in the eye with the uh, stick that he was fighting me with and I had to go to the ophthalmologist, not the optometrist, the ophthalmologist, because it really messed up my eye and my mom decided she didn't want to deal with that anyway. But I got the, the cool Boy Scout book 
And in the Boy Scout book, when you opened it up and you looked, it showed the progression of the wound that is made when you get bitten by a black widow spider. And friends, it's bad. Like necrosis sets in. You're, th it, this wound just opens up and the flesh just starts rotting away. It's bad. You gotta get that treated. What happens if you just spray a little pain reliever on that? Hey, just hang on. I know you got bit by a black with a spider, but just let me get you a little pain reliever. Here, you want some fentanyl? It'll make you feel better all over. And then your dadgum arm rots off and then it gets to your heart and kills you. That's sin and that's what's happening to people every single day because you and I are too scared to be offensive enough to say Jesus died for your sin and yes, you are a sinner. And I'm a sinner and we fall short and you need that remedy. You need that death on the cross to save you. To look at the cross is to know the price for sin and the consequences of it. To look at the cross is to understand God's justice. I've heard preachers say uh, that, you know, the cross isn't fair. That wasn't fair. It wasn't justice. No, it was exactly justice. You just heard it quoted, right? God did it to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Somebody's got to get it. And Jesus took it all on himself. He who knew no sin became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a very, very big deal, friends. So there are a lot of things that are wrong in our world and most of them are the result, direct or indirect, of human sin. There's a lot of injustice in the world, but the greatest injustice is the mistreatment of a loving God when we reject him and we choose to sin. When I choose to sin against a loving God, that's the greatest injustice. How much worse than to belittle the atoning sacrifice of Christ? Jesus' death on the cross paid the great price of sin and proved God's love for human beings. Christ's resurrection overcame death and sin. And because of this, God grants eternal life to all who change their minds about sin and trust Christ to take, away, take it away through his death and resurrection. I love this verse, 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes we are healed. You see, there's a vicarious nature to Christ's death. That is, he didn't, are you listening? Mm -hmm. He didn't just die in your place. He didn't just die for you. He died as you. And when you identify yourself as the one who died on the cross, was buried and was raised because you are in Christ, you right there have overcome sin. You have the power to overcome sin right there because you recognize that you are no, it is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you, right? The apostle Paul said, for I have been crucified with Christ and no longer do I live. That's what you and I have to say. We've got to come to that place. Am I in Christ? Have I said Jesus as Lord? Then I am crucified with Christ and no longer do I live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live on in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what baptism is. The death, burial, and resurrection of me in Christ. 
And so I have a new life to live. And when I recognize that and I go through that and I understand that and I, I, I remind myself of that every time I take the Lord's Supper, right? The body of Christ in that wafer, the blood of Christ in that cup. That's the suffering body of Christ. That's the shed blood of Christ. That's life for life. Right? What does it say in the Old Testament? Do you know the reasons why the Jewish, the reason why the Jewish people would not uh, eat rare meat or drink blood? The reason why you had to properly slaughter an animal so that all the blood ran out? Because the life is in the blood. Jesus poured out his life for your life and for my life. And when I drink that cup, I'm reminded of that trade. He who knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Don't shift this over to become some sort of morality religion, some sort of New Testament you know, Judaism. This isn't about keeping rules. This isn't about what you eat and what you don't eat and whether you go to church and all that. It's about Jesus giving us new life and then us choosing to live it out. Then he says, and he quotes, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This is actually a quotation from the Septuagint translation, that is the Greek translation of Isaiah 29, 14. That verse... Uh, and the surrounding context, uh, I'm going to quote right now. This is the New American Standard of that. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously and marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish." and the discernment of their discerning will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and who, those, <clears throat> excuse me, whose deeds are done in a dark place. So Jesus quoted Isaiah 29, 13. That's the, this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. He quoted that, and we find uh, Jesus quoting that in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. And he quotes it, that is, Jesus quotes it in response to criticism from the Pharisees because he and his disciples were eating without ceremonially washing their hands, which was a tradition that was passed on from the elders. There's nothing in the Old Testament, there's nothing in the Torah that says you must ceremonially wash your hands in the way that they did before you eat. But there was this tradition, and there were many traditions that had been passed on from the elders. I have... Uh, mentioned this before uh, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the law and we talked about the boundaries uh, when I talked about Nicodemus, okay? Once again, two weeks ago, talked about the boundaries that the Pharisees built around the law so that they wouldn't violate the law, okay? Uh, a lot of those boundaries uh, come to the surface in the New Testament regarding their observance of the Sabbath. There were just a lot of things that you couldn't do. You couldn't walk more than, I can't remember, it seems like it's like a half a mile. It's called a Sabbath day's journey, but it's like about a half a mile. That's all you could do. Uh, I mentioned on that Sunday two weeks ago, uh, one of their boundaries was if a hen laid an egg on the Sabbath, you couldn't eat it because the hen worked, right? 
women were told not to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because the woman being so vain might be tempted to pull a gray hair and that would be a violation of the Sabbath. This is how ridiculous they got, right? They had many, many boundaries. But these were all the tradition of the elders, right? In Jesus' day, they passed these traditions down orally. None of them were written down. They read the Torah, but they passed these traditions on. But later, those traditions were taught and then they were written down. And that's after a couple hundred years, really second century AD. They're written down. And that document in which these traditions are written down is called the Mishnah, the Mishnah, okay? And then a couple hundred years after that, the Mishnah had become so much, so important. So you had the Torah, the law, you had the Midrash, and that would be the uh, application of the law, the teaching about the law, right? The explanation of the law, the Midrash. And you have the Mishnah, so you have all of these traditions of the elders. And then several hundred years after that, you have the Gemara, which represented commentary on the Mishnah. We've gotten so far away from the Torah now, we don't even know what it says anymore. We're relying on what this teacher said about this teacher about this teacher. But this is already happening in Jesus' day, right? Um, Jesus taught that traditions of this kind are, and, are, that are rigidly held may in fact substitute for a genuine relationship with God. In fact, rituals once had meaning uh, can become meaningless in a culture. I wonder how many children that you could talk to today would understand what Easter is. In fact, they're not even doing anything, probably many children, that would help them to understand that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus. There is no other reason to celebrate Easter other than the resurrection of Jesus. And yet children will think it's about bunnies and eggs. This is a good example of something that makes its way into the culture and then the sign takes the place of the thing it's pointing to. This is the empty tradition that you find in many churches. And it doesn't matter if it's a high church, like a Catholic church or an Episcopal, whatever, you know, you're, you're genuflecting and you're chanting and you're doing all these things. You don't even know why you're doing it. But there are people that probably come to our church and we have a set service that we follow pretty much. We have three or four songs at the beginning of the service and, you know, we'll maybe have a video or a skit or whatever and a teaching message and then one or two songs at the end. But see, it's not about the things we're doing. It's about what they're trying to say to you. But if you focus on the songs or you focus on what the preacher's wearing or, you know, you focus on, you know, the video or you focus on the lights or whatever it is, then we're, we're missing the point. And that's what was happening with these folks. They were focused on the tradition of the elders and they had missed the point altogether, right? So it seems then in this passage where he says, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discernment I will thwart. It seems that God has chosen to replace tradition, that is the wisdom of the elders, with the preaching of the cross. Listen again, throw it all away. On Easter Sunday morning, we're gonna stand out there on the square or sit and there's not gonna be any 
amplification. It's not going to be any, any videos, right? You're just going to have to sing the songs from memory. And we're just going to worship for an hour. It's just old school. All of these things are great. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. I'm saying that anything can get in the way when you overly focus. You know what? The Bible can get in the way. Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify of me. You can even elevate the Bible to the place of idolatry. Call it bibliolatry. Is there anything wrong with the Bible? Absolutely not. We need it. But the Bible is pointing to Jesus, guys. That's who we're focused on. That's who we should be focused on, right? Um, so the, the Apostle Paul asks, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the made foolish the wisdom of the world? So the simplicity of the cross makes the complexity of philosophical and theological systems look foolish. Even a child can understand the gospel. You can explain it simply to a child. You know, that's the beauty of the stories that are told in the Bible. We get all caught up with, you know, well, how do I, how do I, you know, make that uh, synchronize with what science has discovered? You know, you may or may not be able to do that, but if you want to promote faith, you've got to preach the story. You've got to preach the word. We can't be afraid to tell children that Jesus died for their sins. We can't be afraid to tell children that they do sin and that sin is not what God wants and that Jesus came to die for their sins and rise from the dead so that they can be saved. When a child is old enough to receive that by faith, the child is old enough to be saved. Child may be five, six, or seven, or eight, but we need to quit putting off when the child can be saved because we think that they need to have some sort of a full understanding of the Bible. They don't need to have a full understanding of the Bible. They just need to believe, right? because God makes the wisdom of the world foolishness. And I'm telling you, I've got a book upstairs um, by a, uh, I was consulting it when I was trying to remember the name of the, the, the Midrash and the Mishnah and the Gemara and the Talmud and all these other names, because I want to have this for you guys on the, you know, the top of my memory. And that had kind of pushed down and I was, I was kind of transposing some of those words. But it's a book uh, called uh, or on or about Judaism by a uh, man named Isidore Epstein. Judaism is unbelievably complex. It is a religion that spans 5,000 years of history. It's, we, we just touch the, the tip of the iceberg when we look at what Jesus was dealing with in his day, when we talk about some of the things we talk about in the Old Testament, it is phenomenally complex. And these scribes, the, the ones that copied the scripture, and these Pharisees, the ones that were trying to keep all the rules and so forth, were steeped in it. And uh, you know, many of the Jewish people today, it's the, it's the same thing. They're, they're very, very uh, deep in this uh, understanding. But we're not saved by knowledge. We're saved by faith, right? 
So you don't need a theological education to grasp that, understand it, nor do you need to have some kind of deep knowledge to obtain eternal life. You just trust Jesus who died and rose and who'll save you. Let me end with this verse. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So God is wise. And in his wisdom, he made sure that people could not obtain salvation through human wisdom. You can't get smart enough to get saved. You can't become wise enough or, or biblically literate enough or have enough truth memorized to be saved. In God's wisdom, he said, you're not going to get saved that way. That's his wisdom. But it pleased God that through the folly, now you, you probably, really probably just put quotes around that word, folly of the cross. Folly means how it would have appeared to the world of that day, how it would have appeared to the Gentiles, to the intelligent of that day, that through the foolishness or the folly of the cross, we preach and people are saved. I think that's what we get away from is you folks who have been to church have heard about Jesus, you've heard about his death and burial and resurrection so many times that it's just, it's worn smooth in your hearing. And yet the people who need to be saved need to hear that. And you need to know it well enough so that you too can preach it, you can speak it. You can incite faith in people because that's how they get saved. They get saved when they understand that they are a sinner in need of a savior and that savior died on the cross, was buried and rose on the third day. That's how you're saved, that's how everybody else is saved. That's the message of the cross and that's what we preach, all right? God bless you.